You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Tonight's reading comes from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on its right and the goats on its left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you in sick or in prison and come to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devils and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was in sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, Whatever you did did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Uh, Good. So, uh, yep, let's pray. Have the Bible open. Have an outline open if that's helpful. I'm going to pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, do thank you for this, your word. Uh, we thank you that you rule over all things, uh, and when seems, uh, things seem surprising and chaotic for us, uh, they're not for you. Uh, we pray, Father, that you would use this time together as we look at your word to help us to prepare well for the coming of your Son, uh, and his, uh, in particular uh, for his judgment. Uh, in his name we pray, Amen. Uh, well, One time, a few years back, I was doing some uh, pre-marriage sessions, or at least talking about pre-marriage sessions with a particular couple, not a couple that is a part of DPC, uh, just to, you know, be clear. I was chatting away to them, and after a little while of talking about what I usually do in pre-marriage, one of them said to me, "Uh, why do we have to do so many sessions? I usually do about six one-hour sessions to prep couples for, for marriage. And so I said to him, uh, well, let me, t- let me ask, uh, how much time do you guys think you're spending preparing for your wedding day? And as you can imagine, it was quite a lot of time, at least a couple of hours each week, kind of ramping up as we got closer to the wedding day. And so I said to them, if you're going to spend all of that time preparing for one day, don't you think it would be wise to spend at least six hours preparing for a lifetime of marriage? But it's really important to prepare well for the things that are most important in life, isn't it? 
Uh, these past few weeks, we've been looking at a series of passages from Matthew's Gospel uh, that keep putting on the agenda the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return to judge. Uh, the judgment, this judgment that's going to uh, determine our, uh, our eternal destinies. It's pretty heavy. Right? Some people are going to enter the eternal bliss of heaven, enter into their master's happiness we heard last week, while others are going to enter into the eternal despair of hell. And like my friends with the pre-marriage classes, you might say, gee, that's a bit full on, it's a bit intense, it's a bit heavy. You know, I come to church on a Sunday afternoon for a spiritual pick-me-up to get me through the next week. I don't want all this talk about future judgment when Christ returns. But if this life that we're living now is the equivalent of a wedding day, you know, here today and gone tomorrow, and eternity is the equivalent of a lifetime of marriage, in heaven, of course. Uh, sorry, that was a joke. You know, anyway. Uh, right, eternity is the equivalent of a lifetime of marriage, then surely it would be wise to spend at least a little bit of time thinking about how we can be prepared for Christ's judgment, how we can be prepared for eternity, even if it does feel a bit heavy, a bit uncomfortable, a bit intense. I kind of make no apologies for that, because eternity is a really long time, and it's good to be prepared for it. So we see here in today's passage uh, that we prepare well for Christ's judgment by receiving him by grace through faith and by lovingly serving even the least of his people. That's my summary of the passage. We prepare well for Christ's judgment uh, by receiving him by grace through faith and by lovingly serving even the least of his people. Uh, so take a look first. If you've got your Bible open, look at verses 31 to 33 uh, where we see that Christ will return to judge. He'll return to judge because it's part of who he is. It's part of the role that his father has entrusted to him. Uh, that's first because Christ is the glorious son of man. Look in verse 31. Uh, Jesus says, uh, When the son of man comes, speaking about himself, uh, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Uh, these words take us back to a vision that Daniel had in the Old Testament, in Daniel chapter 7. Verses 13 and 14. Uh, you can look it up later on if you like. I'll read out the verses now. In my vision at night, Daniel says, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days. So that's a, another title for God. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power over all nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I hope you can see the parallels to Matthew 25, verse 31. Jesus is the glorious Son of Man, the Son of Man who one day will return to fully and finally establish his kingdom, his eternal kingdom, his kingdom that will not pass away. But he's the glorious Son of man, and in verse 32, we see that he's also the promised shepherd king. Take a look in verse 32. Jesus says, all the nations will be gathered before me, before him. And he will separate uh, the people as one, uh, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. I wonder, why do you think Jesus picks this particular image Right, a shepherd separating, 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 
a shepherd separating sheep from goats for this picture of judgment. Why would he pick that image? Well, it's because of a promise that God made back in Ezekiel chapter 34 in the Old Testament. If you look back at Ezekiel 34, uh, now or later on, you'll see in verse 17, God says, As for you, my flock, that's speaking to the people of Israel, uh, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I will judge between one sheep and another sheep and between rams and goats. And then down in verses 22 to 24 in the same chapter, God says, I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them, over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, really from the the moment that Jesus uh, triumphantly entered Jerusalem back in, what was it, chapter 21 or something like that, uh, from that moment we've seen a whole bunch of people recognize that Jesus is the son of David, the promised son of David. Go back and read the chapters if you like. The promised son of David, the Christ, the Messiah. And here we see that Jesus understands that. And he understands that as the promised son of David uh, from Ezekiel 34, one day he's going to return to judge, uh, to separate people uh, one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. You see, Jesus understands who he is. He's the glorious son of man. He's the promised shepherd king who one day will return to judge. And in verses 31 to 33, we see at least six things about his judgment. I'll move through these quite quickly. The first is that we see that Christ's judgment is certain. If you were with us last week, you got this idea that the return of Jesus might be long delayed, but it will come. The master will return. The bridegroom will come back. Here, Jesus is in absolutely no doubt that the Son of Man will return to judge. This is one appointment that all of us have locked in our diaries. You can't dodge it in any way, shape or form. The Son of Man will return to judge. His return is certain and his return is public. His judgment is public. He's going to come in glory, we're told, with all the angels with him and he'll sit on his glorious throne. This is not a kind of secret, covert return that most people will be blissfully unaware of and go on with their everyday lives. No. This is a public and visible return, a public judgment, which everyone will be aware of. Oh, we'll all be aware of it because Christ's judgment is universal. Look in verse 32. All the nations will be gathered before him. Remember, Christ is the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. He's been given sovereign power over how many nations? Every nation. Every nation. How much authority has he been given? He's been given all authority. So his judgment is universal. He'll be the judge over people of every nation. But his judgment is also individual. Take a look there. Notice, he'll separate the people one from another. Each of us is going to have to stand on our own two feet before Christ's judgment seat. There's no hiding behind someone else, no pointing the finger at someone else, no seeking a second chance. Christ's judgment is individual. And his judgment is separating in the sense that each individual will have one of two outcomes. You see that? 
You'll either be a sheep or a goat. And that judgment is final. Look at verse 46. After this judgment, you'll either experience eternal life or eternal punishment. There's no second chances, no opportunity to bring up new evidence. Christ has seen all the evidence, he's gathered all the evidence, he's considered all the evidence, and this is his final judgment. Christ will return to judge. And that's all pretty heavy, isn't it? Maybe a bit more heavy than six pre-marriage sessions. I don't know. So, so how do we prepare well for Christ's judgment? Well, in this passage, it's a little bit like the examiner's given us not just the questions for the exam, but the answers. So that's very good of God, isn't it? How do we prepare well for Christ's judgment? First, we see that we prepare well by receiving Christ by faith, uh, by grace, through faith. Right? Because salvation is always by God's grace and through faith in Christ. That's the only way. Uh, so take a look in verse 34. Uh, we see that the sheep receive God's amazing grace. Remember, Christ is delivering his final judgment upon their sheep in verse 34. And you'll notice that he doesn't conduct an investigation into whether they've been good enough to receive eternal life. He doesn't do that. He simply calls them to come to him. And then he says they are blessed by his Father in heaven. As funny as it might sound, the picture, uh, these sheep are objects of God's divine grace and favor and mercy. They are blessed by God. Indeed, they must be children of God. To mix the metaphors, these sheep are also children. Because what does Christ say to them? He says, take hold of your inheritance. Who gets to share in the father's inheritance? Only children in the family. These, these are children of God, sharing in a wonderful inheritance. And the inheritance uh, is the kingdom that has been prepared for them since the creation of the world. Right? This is the kingdom from Daniel chapter 7, right? That the eternal kingdom that the, that the ancient of days entrusted to the Son of Man. So down in verse 46, we see that this eternal kingdom includes eternal life. Last week, it was pictured as entering into the master's happiness. It's an eternity in a completely transformed world with Christ and his people, a world that's free of all suffering and sickness and evil and pain. It's a wonderful inheritance. And it's clear from this verse that these sheep are receiving this inheritance as a gift, not earning it as a reward. Why do I say it's clear? Well, because it was prepared for them since the creation of the world. Well, long before any of them were born, long before any of them had a chance to prove that they deserved it. It's a wonderful gift of God's grace. The sheep receive God's grace, and they receive God's grace because, second, they receive God's king. I take a look in verses 35 and 36. If you glance through those verses, you can underline them or count them or whatever. But you'll see that Jesus uses the word I six times. I mean, I've got a vision impairment. I think it's six. Uh, but, you know, if I'm one short, then you can tell me. So he uses the word I six times. He uses the word me six times. But at first glance, when you read verses 35 and 36, it might seem like it's about how you've treated other people. Right? That's the most important thing. But on a deeper level, it's actually about how you've treated Jesus. What's the point? The point is that these sheep are entering God's kingdom 
because they've received God's king. And because of how they've treated God's king. They've welcomed him. Right? They've, uh, look at the six verbs. That's another part of verses 35 and 6. The action words. What have these sheep done? They've given Christ something to drink. They've given him something to eat. They've invited him in. They've clothed him. They've looked after him. They've visited him. Right? These sheep are receiving God's grace because these sheep are receiving God's king. The goats are different, aren't they? The goats receive God's judgment. If you look in verse 41, you might see some parallels here where the sheep were told to come to Christ. The goats are told to depart from Christ. Where the sheep were blessed by God, the goats are cursed by God. Where the sheep were called to enter into the eternal life that had been prepared for them, The goats are called to enter into the eternal fire. The fire that was originally prepared for the devil and his angels or or, or demons, but is now deemed to to be suitable for these goats. Now, whether you think that the the fire here is literal or or metaphorical, the point is it's not a good place to go. It's a place of real pain and suffering and torment. Why are these goats being sent there? Well, because of verses 42 and 43. In contrast to the sheep who receive God's king, these goats have rejected God's king. It's pretty clear, isn't it? How do you prepare well for Christ's judgment? You prepare well by receiving him by God's grace through faith in him. By trusting that he died on the cross for your sins to bear the judgment that you deserve. But that, that raises a question, doesn't it? The, the question is, how do you really know if someone's received Christ or rejected Christ? And, and Jesus says, well, it's about how you've treated my people. That's how you know. Right? He says you prepare for his judgment by lovingly serving even the least of his people. Right? That is the public evidence of your faith in him. Now, it might seem a little bit strange to you, but I think it's pretty clear from verses 35 and 36, for example, uh, and later on in in this passage as well, uh, that Christ's judgment is going to be on the basis of works. The works that are listed there in verses 35 and 36 in particular, but I I don't think that's an exhaustive list, right? Saying we're going to be judged on the basis of works. And that's not actually a new idea in Matthew's Gospel. I've listed some verses there in the sermon outline. If you, I think I've listed them anyway, but if not, it's Matthew 7, verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's a challenge, isn't it? Jesus is saying an orthodox profession of faith is not enough. Right? Jesus is Lord, Lord, Lord. That's not enough, Jesus says. You've got to, uh, that profession of faith has to show itself in a life of particular works, in a life of doing the will of his Father in heaven. It's the same in Matthew 16, verse 27. Uh, Jesus says, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, uh, and then uh, he will reward each person according to what? Well, according to what they have done. This idea is all through Matthew's Gospel. In fact, it's all through the New Testament. There are some other verses you could look up if you like. Romans chapter 2, verse 6, you could look that up. 
uh, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 or Revelation 22 verse 12. Right, Christ's judgment is going to be on the basis of works. Which raises a, another question, doesn't it? Which is, if we're going to be judged on the basis of these works, particularly the works that are listed in verses 35 and 36, then why not just get busy doing them? Why not just dedicate our lives to feeding the hungry and caring for the sick, welcoming the outcasts, clothing the naked? If we're going to be judged on the basis of how well we've done, we're with ticking the boxes of these deeds of social justice and mercy and compassion, then we should just get busy doing them, surely. This is what some people might call the social gospel, the idea that, that we as Christians should dedicate ourselves to seeking to transform society by being committed to particular deeds of justice and mercy. That's what it means for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven to transform the world by giving yourself to these things. It's the gospel, frankly, that was preached in the church I grew up in, where it was regularly said, you can have your correct Bible teaching, you can have your correct theology. I've got my deeds, and in the end, that's what matters most. Look at this parable of the sheep and the goats. But they acted as if you could just split apart faith and works. As if it didn't matter what you believed as long as you behaved in the right way. Of course, the problem with that is that we've already seen in this parable uh, that the works that are listed here aren't just about how, you've, how you respond to other people. They're about how you've responded to Christ. They're about what you believe about Christ. But in genuine Christianity, faith and works always go together. It's one of the main themes of the book of James, isn't it? James chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 says, Faith by itself uh, is, uh, um, sorry, uh, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Uh, but someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Right? The, the summary is that real faith always does works. But real Christian works always spring from faith. Right? Real Christian faith always does works, but real Christian works always spring from faith. Now, what particular works is Christ looking for in this parable? It's not as easy, not as easy a question to answer as it might seem. Right? They're listed there, of course. Those are the works he's looking for. But it really does depend on who you think Jesus is referring to, I say in verses 40 and 45, uh, when he talks about the least of these my brothers and sisters. Who's he referring to there? There are a lot of different interpretations. I'm not going to bore you with all of them because I reckon I've found the right one, so I'm just going to tell you what it is. You can look them up later on. But I reckon it's pretty clear that Jesus is referring to his disciples. I say that because if you've, if you've got a Bible, you can flick back to Matthew chapter 12, verses 48 to 50, if you like. Matthew 12, verses 48 to 50. Uh, Jesus is being, I guess, uh, challenged about who his mother and his brothers are. In verse 48, Matthew 12, he says, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Verse 49, pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, notice again, doing the will of my Father in heaven, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. But I think those verses by themselves, kind of case closed, isn't it? When Jesus talks about his his brothers and sisters, he must be talking about his disciples. And there are some extra verses. I won't read all of them out, uh, as in the the full text of them, but I'll list them. Matthew 18, verse 10, you might remember uh, that Jesus refers to his little ones, his brothers and sisters in the church. Matthew 23, verse 8, he, he refers to the fact that we're all brothers and sisters. Matthew 28, verses 10 and 16, Jesus meets the woman uh, after he's raised from the dead, and he says, go and tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee. And who does he meet? He meets his disciples. When Jesus says, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, he's not talking about showing care and love for anyone and everyone around the world. He's talking about showing love and care for his people. Now, I don't don't want you to hear me wrong. Like That's not to negate the fact that as Christians, we're called to love our neighbours no matter who they are. Of course we're to do that. It's not to negate the fact that we're called to care for the poor or or the sick or the needy, the the widows and orphans and outcasts as they're listed in other parts of the Bible. We're called to do all those things. But here Jesus is saying that what's particularly distinct about Christians, right, true Christians, uh, is their loving concern for Christ's people, even the least of the people. Are the people who in the eyes of the world would be seen to be small and little and absolutely nobodies. If you're a Christian, you'll show loving concern for them, Christ says. And that's because of the the deep unity that exists between Christ and his people. I mean, earlier in this chapter, uh, there was that parable. It didn't make all the connections clear, uh, but it seemed like it was saying, and it's clearer in Ephesians 5, isn't it, uh, that Christ is the bridegroom and the church is his bride. There's a deep unity there between a bride and their bridegroom. So Jesus is saying, don't tell me that you love and serve Christ, the bridegroom, if you don't love and serve my people, my bride. Don't claim that you've received me when you're rejecting my people. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it's the body and the head, isn't it? Right? The church is described as the body of Christ. Christ is the head of the body. I don't say that you love and serve Christ the head if you don't love and serve his body. But how you treat Christ's people is clear evidence for how you've treated Christ. So Christ will judge people on the basis of how they've treated his people. And you might say, well, surely that undermines just what you were saying before. I think that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. No, I don't think it does. I'm not saying that this, uh, these works that we do in caring for Christ's people are to earn God's grace. They're in response to God's grace. They're evidence that we've received God's grace. I'm not saying these works we do to care for Christ's people are a substitute for faith in Christ. No, they're evidence of our faith in Christ fruit of our faith in Christ. And I think that's even clear in this passage, in verses 37 to 39. Uh, the sheep are kind of surprised that their care for Christ's people is such a big deal. I take a look there in verse 37. They say, Lord, when did we see you uh, hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? 
Uh, when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or, or uh, in uh, needing, um, needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Well, you know, so the sheep don't say, well, of course we're saved. You know, well, we've spent our whole life earning our salvation by loving and serving Christ's people. That's not what they say. Right, for them, for them, they were really surprised that their care for Christ's people was such a big deal. Their, their care for Christ's people was just an overflow of their care for Christ. It was just part of who there was. They didn't even really think about it. And the goats are the opposite, aren't they? Verse 44, the goats are surprised that their rejection of Christ's people was such a big deal. Their rejection of Christ's people was just an overflow of their prior, uh, their prior rejection of Christ. I was saying, many goats, I'm sure, are very loving and caring people. But they couldn't care two hoots about the church. They wouldn't care about Christ's people at all. It's just not on their radar to care for Christ's people, let alone the least of his people. Maybe they'll give the time of day to an influential leader but not some nobody Christian who's in prison. We prepare well for Christ's judgment by receiving him by grace through faith and by lovingly serving even the least of his people. So it is worth finishing by asking ourselves, uh, how well prepared are you for Christ's judgment? We prepare for lots of things in life. Uh, We prepare very well for lots of things in life. Some of you are university students, uh, you're, or you're about to be a university student, you know what it is to uh, prepare well or not so well for an exam. And some of you perhaps are in the workforce, you know what it is to uh, prepare for a new job or to uh, prepare for a job interview. Others are preparing to move house, preparing to get married, preparing uh, to welcome a new child into your family. Right? We, we prepare well for all sorts of things in this life. But it's critically important, isn't it, that we prepare well for eternity, that we prepare well for Christ's judgment, right? Because eternity is a very, very long time. Um, I've got a little illustration that I want to do here. Is uh, Adam around? Or Here he is, my assistant. Some of you have seen this illustration before. I'm going to attempt to... Uh, oh, wait a second... Adam's going to help if this doesn't uh, if this doesn't work, right? You attempt to stretch that out down the line. Adam will stretch it out. Um, cool. So just imagine for a second. Adam's going to stretch this out as far as possible. Uh, imagine for a second that this whole rope represents eternity. I mean, it, it'd be nice if it went on forever at the door and that kind of thing. But you get the idea. The whole rope represents eternity. Uh, And this uh, little red bit on the end, which you probably can't even see, which works well, that little red bit there is your life. And the line between this red bit and the rest of eternity is Christ's judgment that we're talking about today. His judgment that, that will determine your eternal destiny. We've seen in this passage, will it be eternal life or will it be eternal punishment? As you get the idea, it would make no sense to spend kind of all your time preparing for stuff in the red bit if eternity is the bulk of the time. So how do we prepare well for Christ's judgment that is going to dictate 
where we spend eternity. First, we prepare well by receiving him by grace through faith. I wonder if you've done that. I don't want to assume that everyone here has. I know many of you have. But have you, do you believe that the glorious Son of Man that we see in this passage will one day judge people, uh, who will one day return to judge people of all nations, first came as a suffering servant king who died on the cross to save people of all nations? Do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ died on the cross to bear the judgment for your sins, that by faith in him you might experience God's amazing grace and favor and blessing rather than his judgment? If you do believe that, be assured that when Christ returns, you'll take hold of your full inheritance as a child of God, eternal life in a new heavens and new earth. But if you don't believe that, let me urge you to believe it today. Don't delay, because we don't know when the Lord Jesus Christ will return to set in motion eternity. Believe it today, and you too will be assured of this glorious inheritance of receiving eternal life. But secondly, if you say that you have received Christ by faith, let me ask you, are you lovingly serving Christ's people, even the least of his people? Now, this is not a big stick moment. I know lots of you are doing this really well. Probably like the sheep in verses 37 to 39, you had no idea that your service of Christ's people was such a big deal. It's just part of who you are. It's just something you do. If a brother or sister's sick, you you try to care for them. If they're lonely, you try to visit them or go for a walk with them or something. If for some reason they can't organize meals for themselves, uh, you you might sign up for one of DPC's meal trains. Or you give them something to eat or drink, not because they're someone special, but simply because they're a brother or sister in Christ. They might be someone who in the eyes of the world is an absolute nobody among the least of Christ's people. But you care for them anyway. If that's you, let me encourage you. Your faith and works match up. What you say with your mouth that you love and serve Christ and you say with your hands that you love and serve his people, even the least of his people. But on the other hand, if you're someone who professes to have faith in Christ but you show little to no concern for Christ's people, then I hope you feel challenged by this passage. I hope you feel chastened. I hope you understand that as it stands today, you're not well prepared for Christ's judgment. You can't claim to have received Christ the bridegroom if you constantly reject Christ's bride. Let me urge you today to repent of your hard-heartedness towards the church, perhaps, to bring all your brokenness to do with life in the church to Christ, to ask for his forgiveness, to ask for his healing, are to ask him to help you to commit to lovingly serving his people. We prepare well for Christ's coming by receiving him by grace through faith and by lovingly serving even the least of his people. That we might be prepared, not just for the red bit, right, Uh, but for the rest. Let me pray and then we're going to sing. Uh, Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you that your word doesn't dodge the hard things that might make us feel a bit uncomfortable, that might feel full on or intense or heavy. I pray, Father, that you would help each of us to prepare well for the coming judgment of Christ your Son. 
Uh, Help us by your grace to receive him in faith. And help us, Father, uh, to receive his people too, uh, to lovingly serve even the least of his people. I pray, Father, that uh, anything uh, profitable and useful that I've said today would take root in people's hearts and anything that's just chaff would be blown away and forgotten. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.